I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. So today we have something that is of vital importance to you. We have an expert with us who's going to talk to you about something that you have considered most definitely at one point or another in your life. What we're talking about is sleep. Why have you considered it? Of course, we all do it. But some people don't manage to do it optimally. You often hear conversations about, I had a bad night. I'm not able to sleep. It's a continual problem. I wake up too early. I oversleep. I wake up too late. And there are a lot of problems and consequent interventions in the form of psychotropic medication and all kinds of things that help us wake up up that help us go to sleep and this is an essential part of our lives for very very many important reasons. I had the pleasure and privilege of listening to Dr. Neil Langer who's an international expert on sleep and I said to him please can we drag you back into the studio and help us understand some of the issues that people are concerned with with sleep. So I'm so delighted that you were able to make it today. Neil, and thank you very, very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So, first of all, let's start with the importance of sleep. Why is it so important? What does it do for us? Well, we sleep so that we can be awake. Sleep is a time when our brain decompresses. It allows itself to drain. It cleans itself. It does network maintenance. It files the knowledge that we saw during the day. Our brain takes in about 45% more than we understand every day, and that information still needs to be processed, and it gets processed during sleep. In fact, we are designed to sleep seven to eight hours a day. We're not designed to do anything else for seven to eight hours a day. We can't really sit in one place for seven to eight hours. It's difficult. Similarly, we can't exercise for seven to eight hours. But sleep, we are designed to sleep for seven to eight hours because it's an absolutely critical function. And without it, our brain uh, struggles with mood. It struggles with metabolism. It struggles with energy. And it struggles with focus. So it's a Absolutely correct. This is a critical function. And yes, we should be spending seven hours asleep every 24-hour period. So if we should be spending seven to eight hours a night as human beings asleep, why is it that so many people just find it difficult to sustain that amount of sleep in a night or even to fall asleep? What are the things that interfere with that? I think that things are almost always external that we live in a challenging environment, a challenging world. We have 24-hour access to almost all the knowledge in the world through a cell phone um, or through an Internet connection. These are very interesting things for the brain. We've now modified our lives so that we can lay in bed and do a variety of things, read, watch TV, answer emails, listen to podcasts, any number of things that we choose to do. In other words, we don't value sleep. We actually say, sacrifice sleep to be engaged in the modern world. And this is a challenge that hits children very, very early on as they start to uh, engage with the Internet and engage with uh, devices that are the electronic world. Unfortunately, um, generations recently have sacrificed sleep for the sake of these 
endeavors and it poses a challenge. Our brain is much more interested in doing things. It's very excited by all the technological options. So it will exchange sleep for technology. So let me ask you then, because I mean, you're talking about a kind of modern day problem with all of this technological stimulation and these different kind of opportunities and so on. And both us and our brains are sometimes more excited that we're going to grab this extra hour. And this is the time late at night I do that. So I'm a victim of myself, I guess. Where I say this is a very, very quiet time now. Everyone else has gone to sleep. Yes, it might be late. But, you know, when am I going to grab that hour tomorrow during the day? So now is the time that I'm going to be seduced by my device and answer all of these emails that are waiting for me and so on and so on. So it's easy, and I can say, see how easy. But it's not the only era that we're in now where there were sleep problems. Before we had all of this kind of distraction, people, there were still such things as insomniacs or people who had difficulty in going to sleep. It seems to be a kind of human problem that's been around forever. Absolutely correct, and uh, I can take you back back to the 1700s when there were no street lights and we didn't have the evening or the night to do anything. We actually slept in a bimodal pattern. In other words, we used to sleep when it started to get dark and then be up around middle, middle of the night and then go back to sleep before we got up. That was how we did it. With the advent of street lights, it really compressed our uh, sleep opportunity into a single seven or eight hour or nine hour period. I think our brains internally are quite capable of keeping us awake. There are many people that are privileged to, uh, that their brains actually move very quickly. They're engaged. They want to do things. This concept of we sleep on it is 100% real. Our brain continues to function during sleep. And many uh, external stresses that we bring into our own lives come in through that way, not only technology. It's really what excites our brain, what intrigues our brain, or where the stress is coming from. If there's emotional stress or medical stress, health stress, or financial stress, that stress we bring with us into the sleep period and our brain wants to metabolize through those issues, find a way through for us, understand the problems better. So it does that while we're sleeping. But sometimes it is associated with anxiety, and anxiety is something that maintains alertness and wakefulness and is, in a way, the anti-sleep. So what would you say? First of all, I'd like to say the extensive experience that you've had at various universities devising programs that monitor sleep patterns that have been accepted and used all over the world. Also, I was really taken with the experience that you had had in ICUs. And in people who were in those kind of very ill conditions, and before we just carry on with this, I found that a bit uh, rather fascinating. What did you actually do with these ill patients? Make sure that they sleep the whole night because in an ICU, you can't really tell the difference between day and night, can you? So how did you assist them? (laughs) I assisted them by actually doing the critical care and the medical care more than I was able to advocate for them for sleep. You're 100% correct. Sleep is essential for recovery, yet it's in an ICU and in a hospital where we truly are very, very sleep-deprived. And it makes it difficult to recover. It makes it difficult for our brain to think logically. Uh, The patients are having to take decisions about their health and wellness, and they really are not capable of thinking clearly and making correct decisions. Decisions because unfortunately the hospital environment is 
absolutely unprotective of sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Even vital, the normal hospital environment, they wake you up at like half past four in the morning. Vital signs are done between three and four thirty. Blood draw so that the rounding doctors can be ready, can have the information ready in the morning. It is not patient focused, and it's certainly not sleep focused. Yet, when people uh, lose what we think is cognitive function and become delirious in the ICU, they don't relate it to the lack of sleep. It should be related yeah, to, but it isn't. It isn't. Sure, that's something. I mean, that's really a kind of focus, certainly in our country. And our, you've spent a great deal of time in the United States. Are they aware of that in hospitals, that when there's this cognitive impairment, it's often because of the routines that they institute in hospitals? They're aware of it. They know that they've got their head stuck in the sand. And you can stick your head in the sand, you just can't keep it there. Unfortunately, um, the time is so pressurized, the cost is so high of that kind of care that everything is designed to make the patient better. But I think we impose a ridiculously load on a recovering brain when we do not allow people adequate amounts of time to sleep. So let's go back to our question before I digressed again about people there's been kind of what we would call, I think it's a broad definition by your definition, insomnia, but forever. You've highlighted some of the things, especially to do with modern day distractions, but you you recognizing that there were always distractions, that I think being human means some kind of anxiety sometimes about you know all sorts of things that might not be associated now. So that when you have a very active brain, what tips can you give? Because I think I want people to get a lot of take-home value from what we're talking about now. People who wish to sleep more but who can't, but perhaps without assisted medication or whatever, you just can't go to sleep. Or Is that not true? <laughs> it is true. I mean, we actually have to do nothing to go to sleep. And sleep is free for those who can get it. But if you can't get it, it's expensive and we pay a price for it. I wanted to go back because you mentioned age, ages of sleep issues. Take the most common sleep disorder in the world, which is an infant child. An infant child very much disrupts the sleep, especially of the mother. And that disruption is replaced with being aware of where the child is, a subconscious Evaluation, so uh, everybody really has to be challenged by insomnia at some point in their life, and it's the maladaptive behaviors that we develop in response to that insomnia that perpetuate the sleep difficulty. So what I'm talking about is when you have a baby and you start to now listen with one ear and you're hearing the child and you want to react to the child, then you are going to be sleeping for the next few years with an ear open, and then a child is becoming emancipated and again one has to keep an eye out and an ear out uh, in case they need help in the middle of the night so we face these challenges but we really allow our behavior to get in the way of our natural sleep drive so if you ask for tips about how to do it the tips are relatively few there are three things about sleep that are critical number one how long we sleep number two when we sleep and number three how well we sleep. So if we then take those three aspects of sleep and try and translate that into insomnia, 
People that are trying to sleep off-cycle with their own body drive, so they prefer late nights, they're late-night owls, or they early morning larks, or they have a rotating shift where they have to spend some time sleeping during the day. All those elements uh, will challenge us to sleep at the correct time. Uh, when we don't get that sleep at the correct time, it is jet lag. If anybody has experienced jet lag, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The sun doesn't feel right. Your stomach doesn't feel right. The food doesn't feel right. And our function is not right. We get tired. It comes out of nowhere. That is really about when we sleep. How long we sleep for? It's seven hours. And my biggest tip to you in, in the modern world is don't get absolutely focused on how many hours of sleep you need and what your watch or your phone is telling you. Rather, just listen to how you feel every single day rather than trying to measure sleep because we don't really know when we are and are not asleep. You can wake somebody up and tell them stop snoring and they'll say, I wasn't sleeping. So other aspects are living in the bed which means our bed should be reserved for relationships and for sleep. When it becomes a place where we review emails, we watch TV, we enjoy podcasts, we listen to the radio, then our brain understands that environment to have a menu associated with it. And because it likes to be awake and likes to do things, it will choose from that menu. It will say, we're in bed. I don't want to sleep now. And uh, go ahead and I would rather read. Stop talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm just starting talking to you because. No, I mean, that is what I do have to say. Yeah. But, Especially when it's so cold and you, you know, it's kind of the most comfortable place and warm place to be able to do all of these other things. Oh, well. Now you're saying keep it. it for intimate relations, maybe, and going to sleep. We, no, we, not maybe. Well, we can rule out the one. Okay, let's not go there. Okay. Come on. You can choose which one you want to rule out. But anyway, you're saying that it's got to be associated with not work and not other activities and even television, even enjoyable things. Correct. But tell me, it is true, though, Neil, a lot of people like to watch TV in bed. Uh, they do, and I, I, I don't have a TV in my bed. When I watch it in a hotel room, it's very destructive. I'll just flip through channels again and again and again and again, knowing up I'm giving up time to this exercise of channel flipping. So When you if, could be sleeping. Yeah, and my, we understand it, but we have a two-year-old in our brain. It is alive and well. And this is the two-year-old that is all about me. How can I reward me? I want this. And what the two-year-old brain does, it says, wah, 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 I don't feel like sleeping. What are we going to do? Let's turn on the TV. Wah, 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 I don't like anything on. Let's do something else. So it becomes very confusing because each time we reward that brain, the two-year-old is going to do that same thing the next night and say, wah, 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 turn on the mm. TV, and we just play into that and cater to that. So um, we must acknowledge where the rewards are coming from, set limits about what we can and can't do, and then modify our environment to make it more difficult to cheat. So if you had to put that into practical action, right, so you would say – Come up, decide that you're not going to do anything else that other than that's your sleeping time, right? And so you're saying 
try and impose that discipline on yourself where you do keep those things out. If you want to improve your sleep, keep that time. Is is that what you're saying? I'm trying to translate this into practical action. Right. So the rules are the bed and living in the bed is a problem for my sleep. The rules are the only things I can do in the bed are relationships and sleep. Therefore, I have to find another way to accommodate the TV. Mm. So I sit in the chair next to the bed and watch TV to your heart's content. Be wary that the bright light you're shining in your eyes is the further stimulation to wake. It's literally screaming at your brain through the hypothalamus. It's daytime. Wake up. So one has to protect oneself from the light. Uh, As you've seen, certain phones automatically change color to make it a little bit soft on the eyes. They take out the blue and the white light. But it changes how uh, how focused the television or the electronic screen is. But that's a way you can protect yourself from that bright light. you can get glasses, can't you? You can. Amber-colored blue light blocking computer glasses, well worth the investment. And use that for screen use after dark because our brain through melatonin has gone through this process it's starting heating and cooling changes and it's ready to go to sleep and then we disrupt it by shining bright light Mm. in our eyes and uh, so that's how you accommodate the rule here's another thought it's winter people wear socks to bed here's what you're doing completely messing up your body's ability to keep the temperature it needs to and people say wearing socks yeah And people say, well, no, I wake up and I I take my socks off. What people discount is you may have woken up 30 times before that for no identifiable reason, before you you were awake enough to say, hey, I've got to take my socks off because my feet are hot. So because those arousals uh, from sleep are not recallable to us doesn't mean they don't exist. Yeah. So it's very disruptive. So by all means, stack as many blankets as you want on your feet, but be able to kick your feet out from under the covers so that you cook and cool them down with the expectation of waking up. Mm. Should you go to bed at more or less the same time? Is routine important? Routine is, but when you wake up. So um, we have to be flexible. This is going to become another major disorder when we try and strictly conform our lives to sleep. We can't really control it. And the more we try, the more we get stuck behind the illusion of control and the more frustrated we get with that. For example, my watch says I need eight hours of sleep tonight. Well, now how do I get that? Well, maybe your watch is just unrealistic. And that's just not possible on this night. So we have to have some flexibility. Um, there are most people can flex, some people can't. If you are very sensitive to light or you have delayed or advanced sleep phase syndrome, then yes, you should pick a consistent bedtime. If you have restless legs, you should also pick a consistent bedtime so that your brain knows when the challenge is coming. But where I think it's more important is when you wake up. And if I had to pick one side of the equation to conform, it would be wake up at the same time every single uh, day, whether it be a weekend or a weekday. We know people sleep in on weekends and days off. It's called social jet lag. We see that in massive data sets that come from the peripheral physiologic monitors. Uh, we deprive our sleep, ourselves of sleep throughout the week, and then we use the weekend to sleep in, break all the rules, catch up, feel better, and then we have to reacclimate to the rule set come Monday. Is that wrong? 
It's the way most people do it. I don't know that it's it's. I mean, what does that do to sleep? Because the thing is, you do want to reward yourself. You know, this is now like a Saturday morning or or a Sunday morning or whatever. There isn't the appointment at half past seven. Sure, you wake up and for that second you think ah, and then you think oh, I can just sleep in today, and you snuggle up. Isn't that great? Is there anything really wrong with doing that? So I'm I'm always pro sleep, except when you're driving a car, flying an aeroplane, or operating heavy machinery, then sleep's a bad idea. Sure. But otherwise, sleep's almost always a good idea until you get to around nine hours a night. Mm-hmm. Above nine hours a night, and certainly above eleven hours a night, there seems to be a higher mortality rate. We don't really understand why the mortality is higher when you uh, sleep less than six hours or more than nine hours. But it is. But us humans can function pretty well or should be able to within that six to nine hour range. So we have an ability to customize our sleep need to what we have to do during the day. But we do build up sleep debt throughout the week that we like to pay back. I think it is important, but it is also important to acknowledge you can't pay back sleep debt beyond 48 to 72 hours. So you can't say, today I'll catch up on the last week. Mm -mm. You can say, I'll catch up on the last couple nights. Nights, okay. One thing that is prevalent, we sort of alluded to it in the beginning, and it is, is that for various reasons, sometimes it's over an illness initially, sometimes it's over menopause and waking up. Yeah. And and hot flushes and so on, or there could be other kinds of disorders, yeah. where people get some prescribed sleeping pills and then they just stay on them, and their fear is, and maybe it's a reality and a fear. I'd like to hear your comment that I'll never have a good night's sleep unless I take this pill. It is where the. Um Difference between expectation and realization comes home to roost, and it is somewhat predictable to be related around time of menopause. It can predate menopause for up to 10 years, and it can be a persistent problem following menopause. And one of the most important things that can be done is to adjust the expectation of the individual. The way I liken it is people have an expectation of deep sleep. They want to sleep like a whale. They want to dive down, pop up some three hours later, and say, look how far I've come. Well, you'll get the same distance after menopause, but you'll feel like a dolphin or a porpoise that you're visiting the surface many, many times. So we are talking about depth of sleep as well. We are talking about perception of sleep, which is an incredibly important component, and we are talking about expectations. And resetting expectations to say we're going to go through a period where our sleep is going to be less stable, I may be a bit more moody in the morning, Uh, my children may not love me so much, whatever the case may be, we have to really spend time on changing expectation, and that should modify the need to really knock yourself out, to take a drug so that you forget how badly you slept and you wake up some three hours later or six hours later and you say, I don't remember anything from the night. That is means your brain's been cleaned. Clean the brain enough times, well, hell, it's clean. And that's called something else. That's called dementia. And we're very worried about the contribution of the, these medications that work to a large extent 
through our memory of the night than actually deepening the stages of sleep or getting us significantly more sleep. I know it feels like it. It feels like that to everybody. But it is more related to the memory effects than the direct effects on sleep. So just as a last, the relationship between, say, memory loss, maybe particularly short-term memory loss, Mm. a lot of people say, it's got nothing to do with the pills, it's to do with getting old. Is there really strong evidence that certain of these hypnotics, are they hypnotic? They are. And cause memory loss. So there are a variety of different agents that can be used uh, to help people sleep. Sedatives and uh, is one class. Hypnotics is another class. Yeah. Think about the name of the class of drugs, hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, that it actually, in a way, hypnotizes you, makes you think you're asleep, but you're not. You just don't remember it. So unfortunately, Darian, there is strong data. And it's very difficult to look at cause and effect, but if we could keep a large data set and people that have sleep issues um, versus those that don't, and we can adjust it for age and social status and psychological well-being and medical illness, we can start to decide whether those people on medications have more cognitive dysfunction as they age, and unfortunately they do. And what is most staggering, are two things. Number one, we see this effect in people using between 2 and 22 tablets a year. We see this same effect, but much stronger, in those using a tablet every single night. And the reality of it, we are immediate reward-driven at this point. So when the first tablet didn't work, now we'll take a second tablet, and that's when all bets are off as to what happens in the middle of the night. But again, those people using above the regular dose are even more at risk. So when you see a dose-dependent observation, when you're looking at a medication in a large database that was upwards of 10,000 people coming from Geisinger Healthcare System, it was horrifying information because there's no test we require to do before we start people on these medicines. And the doctors like the medicines, I suppose. Their patients don't complain. They feel great. And they come back every couple of months to say, I need more of that drug. That being said, we can also try and look at the world today. The world's absolutely crazy. Uh, We are so challenged. Maybe we need something to help us sleep. And there are many people self-treat insomnia, not with those medications, but with alcohol, over-the-counter, antihistamines, Mm. cannabis. There are many ways that people self-treat their insomnia because it's very, very common. It will Mm. affect one in three people. And uh, the more we say we can control our world and we can control our environment, the more our expectation Mm. is that we can turn our brains off in one second. So just as a close, could you give a summary, very short summary, if ideally this is the kind of pattern that is going to help you with all the three things you spoke about, the quality, the length, there were three, timing. If you could design the kind of perfect program for an adult... I know there's got to be flexibility and individual idiosyncratic differences come into play for sure, but just kind of for the norm. Go to bed at what time? Do this before you go to bed. 
if you should wake up in the night, then do this, that would would not guarantee anything, but certainly be something to kind of aspire to a little bit. What would you say? I can give you a, a picture of, of what the ideal is, but I have to pr- start with an acknowledgement that each person is an individual, that there are major individual differences about how much sleep we need, how we function after sleep loss, about uh, our medical status, our ability to tolerate sleep loss. When our brain, ideally from a circadian rhythm standpoint, wants to go to bed, the late night hours or the early morning larks, there are a few percentage on each side. Similarly, there are only a few percentage of people that think they can get away with three hours of sleep per night. Society rewards that, so many, many people try and strive for that uh, in a self-damaging way. So what I would suggest is... Fairly regular bedtime. Bedtime should be uh, at least two hours after the sun gets uh, goes down, so it varies by season. And then after that, uh, we should sleep for uh, sorry, seven I'm hours. Sorry, That's yes. hell of a early. You're talking about like in South Africa, it would be you advocating it by, I mean, right now it would be 8.30, I guess. Is that not is is? No, I'm just trying to trying to help you understand where the human body is programmed. Yes. Okay, so it's so, programmed for two hours in the dark. Two hours after something called dim light melatonin onset. As okay. soon as the outside light gets uh, dim, our body releases melatonin from the pineal gland, and the melatonin is a message that goes off: you are going to sleep in two hours. So those people that sit down, turn off the TV, say I'm going to pop my melatonin, and I'm going to expect an effect. Listen to what you just told the brain. You just told your brain, hey, we're going to sleep in two hours. Mm-hmm. So you come into an excellent question. What do you do with excess time in bed? Because you can only be living in the bed if you're not sleeping. Mm. Then it becomes a little bit more difficult. So uh, keep staying in bed, I don't mind when people go to sleep. Those that uh, prefer to go to sleep at 10 or 11, that's fine. As long as you leave at least seven hours mm-hmm. to sleep, that's great. You shouldn't uh, be sleeping for too long, like nine hours. If you wake up in the night, don't look at the clock. Your brain has a very accurate clock in it. It loves to get input. It wants to see the time. It drives you to look at your watch, drives you to look at your phone okay. and see what the time is. Then, of course, there's the odd email and odd Facebook post and odd social networking stuff that comes into the picture. So don't engage with technology. If you cannot sleep and you say, I'm allergic to this bed, this bed is driving me crazy, get up, go to another room. But think about your two-year-old brain and say, I'm not going to reward you at all. What does that look like? That says, go to another room, sit in a dim room, light is on, no music, no TV, no screens, no magazines, no work, no chores. Read. Read a dictionary. I don't care what letter. I don't care what language. Read a dictionary. Books, inherently, you want to say, oh, I wonder what happens in the next chapter. Well, I kind of thought that was good. Maybe I'll read a little bit more. They're designed to keep you engaged. A dictionary is not particularly engage, engaging in that regard. So do something that removes all reward for your brain. And when you feel tired and your brain says, I'd really rather sleep, go back to the bed and try again. Remember, your brain's going to do the quick one-two on you. It's going to wake you up again and say, I'm bored, where, where, where? I want to do something. Take it outside again like you would do to a young child and say there is nothing here for you to do. You may as well sleep. And all the way through this, you should have no access to or perception of the time. Be very careful about your brain. It is smart. It will say, 
I'm thirsty. We should go to the kitchen and get some ice-cold water. Well, there are lots of clocks in the kitchen, so your brain will try and trap you into uh, watching the time. Watch, watch how it happens. Try what I'm telling you, and you'll see how your brain performs. And then have a constant wake time. 7 a.m., 6 a.m., whatever works for you. Mm. Uh, there are people who've shifted their clock and they like the later time, as you've said, and we ought, as humans, normal humans, ought to be able to compensate for mm. that. Sure. Well, there's a lot of information there, a great number of useful tips. I hope that you're going to, if you're one of those who have a problem in getting those seven to eight hours, as I am, I'm going to try and put some of this into not try, will put some of this into practice. Very, very useful. And I think that you can almost guarantee that if you get that amount of sleep, you're going to feel a lot better. And I loved what you said about awake and asleep. You sleep to be awake. So Dr. Neil Langer, thank you very, very much for coming in and for sharing your wisdom and all of the information. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.